Welcome back, everyone, to the 38th episode of the Take the Points podcast, part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm your co-host, Tate Seth, joined as always by Arjun Menon, coming off an amazing weekend of football. Arjun, what did you think about everything that happened? Yeah, this was this was the craziest weekend of football I think we've ever had to, or at least this season we've gotten to watch. So many games came down to the wire, the final play, the final drive. It was every single slate of games, the whole entire Saturday slate, the 1 p.m. slate, the 4 p.m. slate, every slate had great games to watch that eventually ended, you know, with a team making a great comeback or, or winning off uh, a crazy play or a crazy throw. It was it was truly a great uh, weekend of football. Um, and if, if this is any indication of how the rest of the season is going to play off or, or how the playoffs are going to go, I'm super excited for what's left in store for the NFL. Definitely agree. And I wrote down a list of things that happened before we jump into like a lot of these things in detail. So just to, just to name, you know, I didn't even get everything here, but just to name a couple things, Vikings pull off the largest comeback in NFL history, passing Frank Reich's comeback where he led his team from 32 down, you know, Vikings went from 33 down against the team that fired Frank Reich midseason uh, to, to hire Jeff Saturday, which I thought was really funny. Bill's Dolphins played, you know, what I felt was like a playoff game in the snow, playoff atmosphere. It was delayed at one point because fans were throwing snowballs on the field to, you know, close us off Saturday night. Then we woke up on Sunday and, you know, the one o'clock games were insane. Texans took the Chiefs into overtime, you know, best team versus worst team in the NFL and they go into overtime. That's just kind of how this league is. Jaguars went off a pick six in their own overtime game, which is great for them to kind of get back in the playoff race that, that we'll talk about. Uh, Lions scored a 50-yard touchdown on fourth and one to win their game. Uh, Raiders won on the last play, like, you know, probably the craziest play of the season. And then Justin Herbert made, you know, I think the throw of the year right now to Mike Williams to Chargers in field goal range to win that game. And then the Commanders lost on Sunday night <laughs> because the ref gave like mixed signals to Terry McLaurin about whether or not he was lined up on sides and or on the line of scrimmage. So, you know, with all that being said, let's start with some of your thoughts on, on Viking Colts. Yeah, Vikings Colts really a, a play of or a game of two halves. Um, it, the Colts didn't necessarily like. I didn't think the Colts were playing like exceptionally well. Getting you know going up thirty three zero off a blocked punt and a pick six. Like you know the defense was was playing well. I think early on the offense was wasn't doing that great. They were getting into field goal range and then kind of stalling. I didn't, you know, it's just typical of the Colts that since Jeff, Jeff Saturday has taken over, they have the worst offense in the NFL per EPA per play. So, you know, them not being that successful on offense wasn't um, wasn't too surprising, even if it did come against the Vikings defense, which isn't that good this year. But I don't know. It's like I don't get how the Vikings have been doing this every year, still undefeated in one score games, still pretty much don't have a blemish in these close games. It I, I don't know what the Colts like should have done or could have done so that they didn't lose this game. But the fact that Kirk Cousins of all QBs pulled off this miraculous comeback is just appalling. And I it just kind of it kind of just shows where the Colts are right now as a team and how kind of like lucky the Vikings are getting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think from a grading perspective, when you evaluate Kirk Cousins' performance, whether you're the PFF graders or whether you're analysts or fans in general, you have to like think about how much you want to wait fourth quarter performance because Kirk Cousins was was playing pretty poorly in that first half. You know, a lot of the reasons why the Colts scored wasn't 
his fault. And, you know, I think the pick six was probably more on Rieger than it was Cousins. But in general, he didn't, you know, play that well. He took some bad sacks in that first half. But Kirk Cousins, you know, the, the third and fourth quarter, I thought played really well. And so if you wait that more than you want to wait the first half by a significant amount, then you think, you know, that Kirk Cousins had a really, really good game to lead this comeback. And, you know, I, I tend to kind of be in that camp. And, you know, that's kind of what Kirk Cousins has done the whole year, like you mentioned, and the Vikings as a whole, is, you know, Cousins has added um, 254% of win probability in the fourth quarter yeah. and overtime this season, which is the most in the NFL. And then he ranks second in fourth quarter and overtime EPA per play. So, you know what? He, he did get a lot of help from the Dalvin Cook, you know, screen that he took to the house from 64 yards out. But there are also a lot of, you know, plays that Cousins made in this game to to lead the comeback for the Vikings that I thought was was really interesting. And, you know, that's why I think, like, in, in, in the aggregate, he probably had, like, an above-average game, not an elite game, but he was elite in that second half. Yeah, and so, you know, for the listeners, 254% of win probability basically means he's adding about 2.54 wins in the fourth quarter alone based on, you know, the win probability he adds. It, it is a good question to ask because I think, you like if you're just if you weigh his fourth quarter more you're kind of saying like i i'm disregarding quarters one through three or like i'm not i don't care about about it that that much as long as he's good for one quarter that's all that matters Mm -hmm. which i think is wrong and when you're playing from behind 33-0 you're going to be playing prevent defense you're going to be playing cover three you're going to be playing these single high coverages or or too high where teams are just playing off they're not letting you have have explosive plays and it's easy to pick apart those defenses. Like, I don't, that's where I'm just like, I don't think Kirk should be praised that much. Like, I think he, he was definitely influential in their comeback. He made some great throws, some seam balls. He had, he had a couple backside digs, like in, in tight windows. But when you're playing against, first, first of all, Gus Bradley, the king of blowing leads. And, <laughs> you know, his defensive philosophy is sit in single high, run cover three. And when you're up by more than two scores, you're playing prevent, you're rushing for and playing prevent. Like that's all you're doing. And so Kirk is one of those quarterbacks you can take advantage of those coverages. And especially when you have your entire receiving core healthy, you have both your starting tackles and you have TJ Hawkinson, you know, who didn't really have that big of an impact in this game. But, you know, again, when you adjust for, he's not playing like aggressive defenses. He's not playing, like the Colts completely switched their game plan, I think, from the first half to the second half. And I think that's something we have to adjust for mentally. And also like, stati- like you can't really adjust for that statistically. But yeah, I think a lot of Vikings fans are are mad about, you know, Cousins PFF grade or like that. He's not getting as much hype in the media. But again, like he's not, you know, it was also that the Vikings defense showed up in the second half and only a lot of three points, right? So it goes both ways. Um, I, I did like that you brought up Cousins in this scenario because I did think, you know, he had an okay performance, but it wasn't anything spectacular. That's that's true. And it, it does go back to, you know, the complaint about comeback wins as a stat because it, you, you would have to play poorly in, let's say, the first three quarters to give yourself an opportunity to have a comeback win. And, like, that's kind of like, you know, what Andrew Luck saw. He didn't play poorly, but he wasn't, like, great in quarters one through three, but he was amazing in the fourth quarter. Uh, throughout his career and and, you know that's something that like someone like Patrick Mahomes doesn't have the opportunity to have a lot of comeback wins because he's usually leading by that much but before we move on to the next game just had some stats here that that I uh, ran so Colts ran the second most plays all season with a greater than 95% win probability uh, with 54 plays above this mark so they ended up losing the game 
Um, and, you know, only the, the Miami Dolphins against the Houston Texans had more plays above 95% win buddy. And, like, teams with, you know, 95% win probability win 95% of the time. Like, that's how, yeah. you know, these, these kind of metrics work. So for the Colts to have that for 54 plays on offense and still not win is wild to me. Then I went, went back and looked all the way from 2006 to, you know, before this game. Teams that have run at least 50 plays on offense with uh, 95% win probability or greater have gone 106-0 and 0 until the Colts ended up blowing this lead. So, you know, obviously a historic comeback because it was like the biggest comeback in NFL history, but that's just some other numbers to kind of put it in perspective, which I think was pretty crazy. Yeah, those are some great pulls. And the yeah, I think that one's going to sting for a while. That probably... I probably cements that Jeff Saturday isn't going to be the coach next year. Like you just can't blow those type of leads regardless, like who's playing quarterback, or, like how beat up the roster is. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think we should move on just quickly talk about Raiders Patriots. Like I think overall it wasn't that great of a game. Raiders won the first half pretty dominantly. And then P- Patriots came back in the second half, but like, what, what was that last play? Like I just like analytics aside, like I don't even know what that last play was. It would, yeah. I mean, if it's a tied game, you don't want to put yourself into that type of risk where a team could return, you know, fumble for the other side. And, you know, 90, 98, 99% of the time in that situation, we see the team kneel in a situation where they can't throw a Hail Mary to the end zone. We see the team kneel and take it into yeah. overtime. You know, I don't know whose decision it was from the Patriots side, whether it's Matt Patricia, Joe Judge, or Bill Belichick's to try to score on that play. Uh, and, you know, the, and by handing the ball off to Stevenson. And then I think, you know, Stevenson and Jacoby Myers did a really good job talking to the media and taking blame for, you know, kind of this, this last play of the game where I, don't, I think Stevenson went rogue to begin with by throwing it to Myers. And then Myers, you know, made a pretty poor decision to throw it cross field uh, to the quarterback when he was the last defender back there. But it's just kind of like sums up the Patriots season where defense grinds for them, you know, gets a pick six. And their offense just hasn't been good enough to keep up with that and, you know, kind of throws away the game there at the end. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with that. It, it was it was a really bad play on Meyer's part. I At this point, though, I do, I do want to, like, just quickly talk about Mac Jones, like where he is in terms of his development. He had, a, like, a pretty solid rookie year, ranked top 10 in the EPA. I don't think the film necessarily matches the stats. I think Josh McDaniels did a tremendous job putting him in good situations, pushing all the easy buttons. But, and like, I'll be honest, like, I didn't watch too much of this game because Chargers, Titans were on and Bengals, were, Bucks were on, which were way better games than this one. But the fact that he averaged a negative 0.14 EPA per play versus the worst defense in the NFL, his entire receiving room with Kendrick Bourne, Aguilar, T- Thornton, and um, Jacoby Myers were all healthy. Hunter Henry, John Smith were healthy. And he still put up a, that bad of a performance, a negative 20.4 CPOE. Like, what does Belichick do with Mac Jones at this point? Like you can't really bench him for Bailey Zappi, but going into next year, like, do you think the Patriots should be looking to reconsider the quarterback position or do you still think like they should give Jones one more year? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, this is a great question. And, you know, I think we know what quarterbacks are going to be most of the time after their second year. Uh, you know, Josh Allen is really the only exception with this rule, but, you know, by, by a quarterback, you know, has two full seasons of play, we get a pretty good idea of their efficiency going forward. And, you know, Jones's efficiency because of how bad this year has been has not even canceled out, you know, his good production last year. It's, you know, put him pretty low in the overall 
quarterback ratings after two years. So I do think that Belichick looks to go, you know, someplace else with, uh, mm-hmm. with quarterback. And, you know, I think there, there are options available, you know, whether you want to go through free agency, if Geno Smith is available, um, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo's return to New England could be possible or even Tom Brady's return to New England could, could be on the table, you know, based on reports that we've seen. So, you know, I, I think like first and foremost, there does need to be a change at offensive coordinator because we can see that this offense is pretty talented with a good offensive line and some, some okay receiving options that yeah. all can work, you know, in, in the aggregate. So if they can come up with a creative play caller that doesn't call screens the most often out of anyone in the league, I think that they could do, you know, kind of well on offense if they get the right quarterback in, in place, place there too as well. Yeah, well said. Um, I agree with you. I think they should actually look to get a real offense coordinator instead of like trying to run the two-man system between Judge and Patricia. I thought the funniest part of that entire game was Belichick saying, Mac Jones couldn't throw a 55-yard Hail Mary. Like, come on, you're you're a first-round NFL quarterback and you can't throw 55 yards in a dome to the end zone. Like, I don't, that obviously doesn't, you know, really represent anything in terms of like quarterback skill, but kind of speaks about Jones's limitations as a passer and and honestly like the type of throws that you know offensive coordinators can call for him because he's not gonna be able to call those run those like play action bootleg deep shot throw throw across the field or like those Derek Carr uh you know floaters to Devontae Adams like he's just not capable of that so you can kind of like just on that quote alone you kind of understand the limitations Jones has as a passer and I do think that um you know while he while he could provide surplus value on a rookie deal he's definitely not a long-term solution um last game just to quickly talk about Chiefs Texans you know this is the second game this season where I feel like the Chiefs just didn't take the opponent serious it was this them versus the Texans this week and the Chiefs versus Rams about two weeks ago where they didn't like really care and when you like let a team like the Texans hang around, like you're playing with fire, playing with variance, and eventually you end up in overtime where the Chiefs didn't even the Chiefs started with the ball, didn't score. And it was because Davis Mills fumbled that they were able to win that game. Like I, I and this is like something football outsiders looked at. Like the elite teams put bad teams away, and the Chiefs don't do that that well. Like they're they they don't cover that well against the spread. You know, I think Eric Eager talked about it on his Twitter. And I think like they just like sometimes Again, just don't take opponents seriously. Mahomes had a great game, but I think outside of that, like the rest of the roster didn't really show up. And um, you know, hang, letting the Texans hang around, given the state of their roster and who they're they're running a two QB system, I think it. You know, the Chiefs should be a little bit worried about their um, about their like uh, not momentum, but like their the state of their team, like going into the into the playoffs. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I I totally agree and. I think, yeah, that we, we do start to see some leaks in the Chiefs. And we talked about the last couple of weeks that the Chiefs defense, like, straight up isn't good. Like, you know, I, I want to see Patrick Mahomes one time with a high-end defense so that he doesn't feel like he always has to put up points on every single drive. But, you know, that's kind of the pressure that he has to get. And even when you're playing the Texans, you still have to feel like that. He put up a 94th percentile total EPA in this game with 19 uh, expected points added. But, you know, because of, uh, Isaiah Pacheco fumbling, you know, which was negative 5.8 EPA, um, you know, Juju Smith-Schuster fumbling, which was negative 5.1 EPA. It, and, and like, just like the Chiefs defense not playing well in general, the Texans were allowed, you know, back into this game and able to take it in overtime. And, you know, that's why we've seen this season when the Chiefs have matched up against the Bills and the Bengals, 
And, you know, those are, are defenses that can, you know, get stops and offenses that can take advantage mm-hmm. of the Chiefs defense. Like the Chiefs have lost both of those games. Like I still really, really like the Chiefs long term because they still have the best quarterback in the NFL and the MVP. But it yeah. is a little worrisome, like you mentioned, that, you know, the, this has kind of happened uh, two times in a row for them. Yeah, their, their defense is definitely going to be a problem, I think, when the playoffs roll around. We talked about it last week, how Spags is mixing up his defenses at, at you know the highest rate of any defense in the league. So maybe they're still trying to gain their footing, but you're in the fourth quarter of the NFL season, like or the fourth quarter of like, you know, if you split up the season into like four mm-hmm. parts. At this point, you like should be like locked down onto like what you're really good at. And I still think the Chiefs haven't found that yet. Um, but yeah, I, I think we should move on to like some of the better games on the slate. Um, starting with Bills Dolphins, the Saturday night game. Um, what was like your big takeaway from that game? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my big takeaway is that no matter what you throw at Josh Allen, he's going to be able to overcome it, and that's why you know even though the Bills offense has their spurts where they they go through an up and down, um, and you know they they can sometimes you know not generate the high end efficiency that like the Chiefs offense like we were just talking about can like Josh Allen is still you know the second most important player to his team in in the league right now and you know like the Bills secondary receivers aren't that good right like Stefan Diggs you know probably ranks fourth in uh, ESPN's tracking data metrics but out of the 108 qualifying receivers Isaiah McKenzie and Dawson Knox are tied for 77th and Gabriel Davis ranks 93rd, and the Bills have the most yard, uh, yards worth of drops this season, according to Ian Harditz. But when you have plays like Josh Allen right before half rolling out to the, the sideline, even though it was a well-covered play by the Dolphins, and they got pressure, and he's still able to find you know a receiver in the back of the end zone for a touchdown or the, the, the designed run game that I know mm-hmm. you have some some stats about that you know can really propel this Bills offense, like they're they're just going to be a force no matter what's thrown at them, and you know the the different types of injuries that they get on their offensive line because Allen is like such a superhuman when it comes to this type of stuff. Yeah, Allen averaged a zero point five two EPA per rush in this game, which again, like he's one of the few quarterbacks I think you can like reliably count on in these like scenarios, um, and I think like. At that point in the game, when Allen rushed for 44 yards, um, it was it was a decent swing. Like that that added 2.6 expected points, or that added 2.6 points basically, and that jumped uh, the Bills' win probability from 29 percent to 38 38 percent, which is one of the highest or uh, a more that that was one of the largest swings and win probability during the game and the fact that you can kind of rely on, on your quarterback to not only be your best rushing threat but also make any throw in the book. I think that puts Allen again in that tier. Um, but the, you know, I, I think with the bills, I still had questions about, you know, the, the third receiving threat. And I think um, against a pretty bad dolphin secondary, it's not, it, it wasn't as um, it, it didn't really have to show that much, but, you know, I think um, going forward, if they're going to be playing in Buffalo, I think that gives them significant home field advantage against teams like the Dolphins, against teams like the Chargers, who are more like, you know, uh, good weather teams. And I, I think overall, the Dolphins had some success on offense, which I do want to talk about Mike McDaniel, because I thought Mike McDaniel was awesome in this game. And, you know, I, I think, you know, Tua's EPA was negative, but the Dolphins 
rush game averaged 0.46 EPA per rush against a, a defense that was top five in EPA per rush allowed heading into this week. He utilized motion at a, at a you know pretty uh, high rate, I think, at least above his season average in this game, I think. And he he relied on the run game on early downs. And I think the only thing I didn't like about him in this game was he went away from the run in these third and shorts. And he tried, I think he got too cute with the pass, calling some screens or calling like an RPO when I think most and Salvan Ahmed were running pretty hard and they were running pretty efficiently throughout the whole game. So I think overall he called a really good game and he was scheming guys open, but I think on some of these late downs, he could have done better by running the ball a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I agree. I, I thought McDaniel was, was really good in this game and kind of found his footing again, you know, like, I think like there's a misconception out there that analytics always says to pass the ball. That's not exactly what analytics says. It says, you know, we can run numbers to determine what's more optimal in these situations. And when you're getting as light of boxes and as off coverage as uh, the, the Dolphins have been getting, you know, especially with the linebacker depth that we talked about when we did our Twitter spaces on Friday, like the linebackers against the Dolphins are further back than against any other team in the league right now. And that's why we can, you know, see the success that they had running the ball where the offensive line can get pushed. And, you know, Raheem Moser, I thought, was having a great game, uh, you know, 56 rushing yards over expected, according to the PFF model. And, like, that's something that worries me a little bit is, you know, it wasn't blocked super, super well for, you know, them to have a great game um, from a run game perspective because I don't think the Dolphins' offensive line is good enough for them, you know, to make a, a long playoff push and, you know, that I think we saw that again with their pass blocking in this game. There's just not a lot of concepts that Mike McDaniel can run that are deep developing down the field concepts because he doesn't trust the offensive line to hold up past two and a half seconds when you could need those those concepts to come. Dolphins still had six explosive passes in this game to the mm -hmm. Bills, seven explosive passes. And, you know, Jalen Waddle's speed on that touchdown where he caught the ball at the plus 40 and there's a defender two yards behind him that had the angle. And by the time they got to the plus 35, Waddle had already passed him. If the Dolphins can, you know, continue to hit on those, they can make this work. But I just don't think their offensive line is good enough to sustain it uh, long term. Yeah. Um, you know, coming into this game, the Dolphins had one of the highest, like, pass rates over expected. Do you think, like, in the playoffs that – they should lean on the run game more. It's like give it like you talked about how teams are playing more too high against them because of Waddle and Tyreek. Like they're I think they're gonna have a lot of like favorable boxes to run to run against. Like I do think, you know, if they get Jeff Wilson back healthy, him and Mostert like are able to kind of carry that load. Like, do you think they should lower their pass rate over expected? Still keep it positive because it's it's still probably gonna be more efficient to pass than run, but like when teams key in on stopping Tyreek and Waddle and and playing like press coverage, playing more man, like do you think the answers to run the ball more for McDaniel is something he's obviously had a lot of success in kind of coordinating that for Kyle Shanahan? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a great point. And, you know, I think like the Dolphins, you know, have the most RPOs in the league, but those are RPOs with a capital P and lowercase other letters because they're really <laughs> a pass first call. Uh, where Tua, you know, uh, d takes the ball out of his running backs, um, you know, breadbasket a lot to throw it. And I think a lot of those could start to become runs. And, you know, that becomes on Tua because when a coach calls an RPO, that's primarily a run call with a pass option to it. And, you know, from the Dolphins' perspective, it's been, you know, a pass first, run second yeah. approach. So if they can kind of flip that mentality, 
from Tua's perspective, from, you know, maybe the offensive line's perspective or kind of like how they're all reading out defenses as a unit. When you can get six-man boxes or five-man boxes where they have, you know, a safety higher than yeah. than most teams would defend in that situation, you should, you, you know, on that RPO, you should be handing it off because that's going to be more more efficient than passing, um, you know, especially with, with kind of like their pass blocking and Tua being in this little slump right now. Yeah, and to kind of just talk about that slump, this is Tua's third straight game producing a negative EPA per play. Reminder that, you know, we kind of talked about how we thought Tua was playing well in his four-game stretch against some pretty bad pass defenses, but it was it was inevitable that this regression was going to hit. Like, he was playing at a pretty high level, or his, he was producing at a high level, and I think a lot of, you know, people that we respect kind of t- t- talked about how he, it was just a lot of one-read stuff. It was guys getting open pretty quickly against against some pretty bad pass defenses. And now he's played three good def- – like the Bills and Diners are great defenses, and the Chargers are okay at this point. And he's hasn't produced at the same level. He's produced three negative EPA per play games. And, you know, his PFF grade is pretty low. I, you know, I, I still think he played better than the negative uh, 0.04 EPA per play. But we did see – you know, he was late on a couple of throws. He threw a couple of balls behind. I think the go route to Jalen Waddle, where Waddle toasted, um, I think it was Trey White off the line. It was underthrown where Waddle had to turn around and jump to catch that. So while I do think he's regressed overall, I, you know, he's still a he's still an okay quarterback. Um, but going into the playoffs, like he's going to need to step it up because they're going to be playing on the road. They're going to have, you know, defense are going to have a year's worth of film to key in on his weaknesses and understand that, like, we can play press and take away his first read and then T struggles a little bit more. So, um, you know, definitely some some signs of concern for the Dolphins offense. But I think as long as they have McDaniel, Tua and Waddle, or, or McDaniel, Tyreek and Waddle, I think they'll be in good shape. Mm-hmm. I agree. And yeah, I think, you know, he can kind of, be put into that Kirk tier, uh, you know, where he can kind of like take apart, you know, bad defenses, which is kind of what like Kirk's and the Tannehills of the world have done their entire career. But playing against, you know, really good defenses and not having that extra element to create, I think can, can kind of hurt him in some spots, you know, again, still, still like um, optimistic about the Dolphins passing offense going forward, because I think, you know, when they, get into the kind of like their their second wind and kind of like some of the th- concepts that they can roll out as we get later in the season. I think we mm-hmm. could see a, a push there from them. But, you know, each week it does get a little bit more concerning that they haven't been able to generate the, um, you know, the, the efficiency that they were, you know, this this first half of the season here uh, as as we, you know, go later into the season. So it'll be it'll be really interesting to see how they handle that going forward. Yeah. All right. Lions, Jets. Uh, you know the roar has been restored i need to hear your take first on it because i know you were watching that game very intently i was also but that was a that was very very interesting game to say the least it was and i agree with the roar being restored uh you know lions are sitting at seven and seven right now after a one and six start which is really wild and this game was especially convincing for me in kind of the infrastructure that the Lions have set up right now because the Lions used to never be able to win games where their quarterback didn't play well and because of you know how poor their defense would play coaching decisions you know like this has kind of been the Lions story for ever since you know I became a Lions fan and they had really good pass blocking in this game against a tough a defensive line in the Jets and then you know I think on that fourth and one that was mentioned earlier 
Ben Johnson calling leak on fourth and one when the <laughs> entire defense was expecting run and Goff being able to stay in the pocket, look, you know, to the other side of the field to distract the defense and then turning to the left side of the field to hit Brock Wright is one of the better play calls of the entire season. And if the Lions end up making the playoffs, it might be the most important play call in franchise yeah. history that, that Johnson called there to win this game. And like, that's the type of stuff that they have in place right now to help support a game where Goff had one of the lowest ADOTs of the entire season, um, you know, was underthrowing Jameson Williams, you know, running to the end zone, was underthrowing, you know, uh, Amon Ross St. Brown or Brock Wright on a couple throws. But, you know, he he hit, you know, on, on the main throw of the game that they needed to score their lone offensive touchdown of the game. And, you know, that's, that's what kind of made me think that, you know, maybe they have the supporting cast and a better playing defense in place to actually do this thing and, and sneak into the playoffs here. Yeah, no, you you hit the nail on the head. I think the lines are surging right now. Um, I I do think you know their offense was was good. I know people will kind of bring up the, um, you know they only scored based on a punt return and a fifty yard touchdown, but they also had a drive end at the one yard line, right? Which you know again those those can go either way. Um, I I don't I didn't think that was a great play call. It was like a slow developing like counter run. It seemed like or, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong there, but. Um, yeah, I think the lines are fine. Um, I, I have been really impressed with Ben Johnson. I will say, though, I think this game, I, I know Goff's like production wise, a 0.31 EPA per play. I don't, I always think that's like way overblown because, you know, he missed Jamison Williams on a, on a pretty open touchdown. Like those are throws you expect like NFL quarterbacks, like the good NFL quarterbacks to make. And it does just show the limitations of Goff as a passer and where like, if you have a top three pick or top two pick with Bryce Young and CJ Stroud sitting there, like you kind of expect them to be able to make that throw or like you would hope they'd be able to make that throw if, if they're going like that high, even someone like Will Levis or Anthony Richardson, who are more developmental guys, like those are like the expect the throws that we'd expect them to make. So I think Goff again, throughout the whole season, he's, he's shown that he's very good at operating within structure. He's, he's good at, hitting the guys that Ben Johnson schemes open for him. But on those type of throws, like game-changing explosive throws where Ben Johnson schemes the guy open, Jameson Williams gets open, and you underthrow that ball, which could have potentially just ended the game right there, putting the Jets behind like one or two scores. You know, you got you to gotta hit those throws. But overall, you know, pretty solid game. On the other side of the ball, Zach Wilson, again, just a privilege game by him. Uh <laughs> You know, his, the stats don't look like too awful. 0.04 EPR per play. He surprisingly had five big time throws, you know, but two turnover worthy plays. And one of the things I was looking at is so Mike LaFleur was able to force um, per, or the Lions defense only perfectly covered the Jets on 26.9% of their off of their defensive plays, which means the the Jets faced non perfect coverage on about 73% um, percent of their plays, which is extremely high. And the Jets just still couldn't produce. Like Zach was miss missing open receivers. That throwback interception was one of the worst interceptions I've seen all year. And again, like I do think his stats were buoyed by some good catches. The catch by Michael Carter where Wilson threw a duck, like that should have either mm -hmm. been an interception or an incompletion, right? So um, what were your kind of thoughts about Zach Wilson in this game? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I do think, you know, the Lions got a little lucky in this game. I, I think if either Mike White or Quinton Williams play this game, 
the Jets win, and you know, I, I was talking to my friend Aaron Warsaw, who's a really big Jets fan, and he kind of had the same sentiment because Zach Wilson had 38% of his passes deemed as uncatchable, uh, which is the third most in the league uh, last week. And you know, it was it was only two percent better than Desmond Ritter making his first career NFL start. So that's where Zach Wilson still is, you know, late into his second season in the league. You know, that that's a problem. And Zach Wilson had a you know a good first half. In this game, he made basically the pro day throw that got him drafted number two overall, but to the other side of the field uh, to, you know, mm-hmm. to score the Jets touchdown right before the half. But the second half was a complete disaster on his part, like you mentioned, um, you know, with the, the one of the worst interceptions of the season. And, you know, just he just like didn't deal with pressure well. And like the Lions like pass rushing group has actually become kind of good. And, you know, they've had the 13th best defense, according to EPA per play since week nine fifth highest pressure rate in the league and the pass rushing package of James Houston, John Kaminsky, Aiden Hutchinson, Romeo Aquara can as like have, you know, wrecked a lot of havoc. And when the jets weren't able to run the ball against, you know, this Lions defensive line playing a lot better, we saw Zach Wilson not be able to kind of take it to the next step. And I'm, you know, I'm sure jets fans were super frustrated, you know, across the board because of, you know, what they knew Mike white could have done in that game with how long he stays in the pocket um, you know, when he's not pressured and then when he's pressured, he gets rid of the ball instantly. Zach Wilson does the opposite where he holds onto the mm-hmm. ball for a long time when pressured. And that leads to, you know, a lot of, a lot of disaster plays and, you know, a couple of them happen in this game. Um, you know, and a couple more could have happened if, you know, some of the receivers like Garrett Wilson and Michael Carter didn't make like incredible catches to, to keep their drives alive there. Yeah, you know, that, that's a, that's a great point. Um, you know, you just look at some of the numbers. First, when under pressure, he had a 3.21 time to throw, which like, that's like extremely high. His ADOT for this game was like 15, 14.9. So like <laughs> while while Mike White takes the check down, so he'll take the underneath, like he'll take what the defense gives him. I think Zach Wilson just tries to create too much. And like if the guy, like the guys are open, Mike LaFleur is scheming these guys open. You're facing non-perfect coverage 73% of the time, yet you only put up 17 points against this defense, right? So <clears throat> at this point i don't really know what the like how the jets move forward i know uh, robert salah has kind of like given his public support for wilson which every head coach should you know do for the starting quarterback but like you're losing games like this and games where you should have won and i think he had a fine last drive where he kept you know kept the drive alive got greg Zerline a chance to tie the game but i think the like the jets should have been able to put up more points given that you know the LaFleur scheming guys open and you know I think the Jets just have the more talent on the outside with Wilson Corey Davis Elijah Moore etc so uh, pretty disappointing you know showing from Wilson and I I do hope the Jets are able to kind of figure out that quarterback situation soon whether it's him or Mike White before the end of the season or um, heading into next year Mm -hmm. yes I agree and I I do like that perfectly covered point and yeah I thought LaFleur did a good game. I, I do want to talk about some of the other coaching decisions, though, from from the head coach. Um, so, so this to set to kind of set the scene here. Uh, you know, Detroit was up thirteen ten. Um, you know, with about six minutes to go in the the fourth quarter, and you know, Dan Campbell made this mistake against Minnesota in Week Three when he kicked the field goal. You know, on, on a fourth and four, fifty four yard field goal, uh, and and you know, it was missed, and the Vikings ended up going down and scoring and winning this game. And then, you know, he does the same exact thing in this game. 
where, you know, the Lions are sitting at fourth and five from the Jets 36 and, you know, Michael Bagley misses the field goal uh, and, and, you know, the Jets are able to go down and score a touchdown, go up 17-13. But then, you know, Lions respond with the 54-yard touchdown that we talked about to go up 20-17. Here's where I think, you know, Robert Sala, who's done a really good job with this defense and, you know, I thought with a lot of his other coaching decisions this year, messed up, you know, with, with this timeout usage. He starts, you know, the Jets drive with a minute 49 and they have all three timeouts. And, you know, on, on second and 10, uh, Zach Wilson, you know, completes a pass to, to Garrett Wilson uh, for 10 yards with, you know, with the play that started with 53 seconds. So, you know, it ended with 48 mm-hmm. seconds. Instead of calling a timeout, they, re- they let 17 seconds run off the clock, snap the ball from midfield with 31 seconds to go. It's an incomplete pass. And then, uh, you know, a play later, Zach Wilson gets sacked for eight yards. And the first timeout that the Jets have, is finally used with 19 seconds to go. And they end up taking a timeout, you know, into the end of the game. So, you, you know, Salah, like, should have used those timeouts earlier because, you know, they ended up having to kick a 58-yard field goal to to tie this game and send to overtime, an outdoor in the cold that's not going to go in, you know, most of the time. So, you know, I thought it was really weird that he waited so long to, to use those timeouts, uh, you know, when, when he should have you really used them earlier, probably starting around 40 to 50 seconds. Yeah, that's a, that's a great you know, kind of like example of game management and like how that affects games. We, we've seen Salah kind of like utilize analytics and like just like strategy in these late game scenarios. Like there was a piece written in, in The Athletic about the Jets kind of like game management team with Dan Smash, um, who was a CMU grad. And I think like Zach Stewart or like Jay Whitmire, who's on the Jets analytics team. Like I think they've done a good job of like helping Salah through those situations. But yeah, I mean, it's it's tough to really know what goes on there. Um, I do agree the timeout usage could have been better. You don't really want to be carrying those timeouts into next week um, unless you like unless you're going out of bounds or something, which the Jets weren't. So um, it, it's a learning experience. Obviously, like he's he's still in year two, but I think because he's in year two, he should have been able to figure it out by then. And this was a this was a massive game. Jets are out of the playoffs now um, or like they're not in the top seven right now. So. Uh, I wouldn't say, you know, obviously this, the loss doesn't fall in Salah. I, I think his time at usage had a part in not being able to tie up the game. But overall, I think um, he was he did his job on defense, at least kind of slowing down the Lions. Mm-hmm. Um, OK, Jaguars, Cowboys. OK, look, I was watching this game and I thought this was one of the best um, games of quarterbacking I've seen of any game this year. Dak Prescott and Trevor Lawrence were on a heater this game. So at the end of game stats, you know, will kind of make it look like they had good games, but not great games. But I thought both quarterbacks were amazing in this game. So Dak and T-Law both had turnovers that resulted in them losing about 8.6 EPA. If you remove the turnovers, Dak averaged a 0.41 EPA per dropback. Trevor Lawrence averaged 0.36 EPA per dropback, which again, like that would put them in like elite territory in a single game sample size. Um, but even then, the Dak Prescott pick six wasn't his fault. It was a it was a great throw. He put it in the receiver's hands. He just dropped it, and unfortunately for Dak, it landed right in Rayshon Jenkins' hands. Um, that led to a pick six, and then Trevor Lawrence lost about four point some. Four point something EPA on a fumble and four EPA on a um on a pick. So I think it was some great quarterbacking. Trevor Lawrence did a tremendous job getting the Jags back in field position to to kind of tie the game at the end of regulation, even after throwing or after losing the fumble on a scramble. 
And again, this was a, a great um, game of quarterbacking. Two of two quarterbacks, which uh, the group chat, film, Twitter, all you know, really, really love. <laughs> yeah, no, you you laid all that out perfectly. Thought the quarterbacks were really, really good in this game when I went back and watched it after it was over. But the play calling is really what really stood out to me. I think what Doug Peterson is doing, both as you know, scheming up. Uh, a lot of the the runs that he used, you know, he used end arounds, uh, you know, knowing, you know, kind of how like Micah Parsons' speed can blow up end arounds. He used that against him in this game uh, to to kind of take advantage of that. And you know, I, I from a passing game perspective, just like the kind of like the receivers that they built, they don't still have a true X receiver that's coming next year in Calvin Ridley. But what they do have is a ton of good secondary receiving options, and between. Uh, Christian Kirk, Zay Jones with the three touchdowns, Evan Ingram, like this can work with Trevor Lawrence playing it as a high of a level as he is right now. What I want to talk about is an- another end of the game situation. So, you know, with, um, with a minute 20 left, Dallas was third and 10 at their own 38 up three. So it's 34, 31 mm-hmm. uh, Dallas. And, you know, they decided to pass the ball on third and 10 and Dak Prescott ended up throwing an incomplete pass to Noah Brown that didn't take any time off the clock. Gave gave the Jaguars the ball back, you know, with um one twelve to go and an extra timeout that they would have used, you know, if the if Dallas decided to run the ball there. What 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 are kind of some of your thoughts there? And you know, if you're given a run look on third and ten at the end of the game, do you like passing it? Would you have done something different with the pass? Like, I want to kind of hear like where where your mind is at with with that decision. Yeah, I. I think if I'm specifically for the Cowboys, I would have run it in that scenario. You have Tyron Smith back, like you have a pretty good run blocking unit. And I would have run it with Tony Pollard, not Ezekiel Elliott. I think Elliott would have been better if it was like third and three, third and four. But in these long distance scenarios where Pollard's more likely to break off a bigger run, I would want to go with Pollard in, in that scenario. And, you know, it kind of relates to one of my big takeaways from this game was like, the Cowboys don't have a reliable second receiver. Michael Gallup got signed to a five-year, $60 million deal this year, or $62.5 million, something like that. I don't think he didn't really make that, that much of an impact in this game. He hasn't made an impact all season, really. And mm-hmm. you're kind of relying on C.D. Lamb to be the, the guy. But when teams can key in on him, and when the Jaguars realize at the end of the game he has a, over 100 yards, you can start bracketing him, right? Like, there's no one else for the for Dak to go to. Like Dalton Schultz is, is an okay, but not great tight end. Noah Brown is like at best a wide receiver three. So in that scenario, because I think the Jags are expecting a CD lamb pass or a pass to CD lamb, or they're expecting a pass in general, I would have tried to go with the run, force them to use their last time out. Um, even if the Cowboys passing attack have been working all game, I still think, I still think because of a favorable run look and you have one of the most explosive backs in the NFL with Tony Pollard and the fact that the Jags, give up, you know, some of the most explosive runs in the league, you know, throughout the whole season, I probably would have gone with a, with a run in that scenario. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. And, you know, touching on the secondary receiver part, I would like to see some more pony personnel, 21, 20 personnel from the Cowboys where both Zeke and Pollard are on the field at the same time, because I, you know, I think I do think Gallup is kind of like the key to this offense. Like if he's re- able to return to pre-injury form, they're going to be fine long term mm-hmm. but he hasn't been able to yet and that's why the Cowboys have made such a strong push for Odell who you know we know now might not be ready to play this season so you know Cowboys are going to have to look elsewhere for some juice at receiver and like Tony Pollard gives you that 
but you still could want you know a reliable rusher and pass blocker uh, in in Ezekiel Elliott there on the field as well. And like Cowboys have only run thirty one plays out of twenty one personnel this year, so you know I, I'd like to see more of that going forward. And you mm. know just maybe like passing out of that formation could could be really good. I think a lot of the 12 personnel they run can be flipped into 21 personnel because Pollard's a better receiver than either of their tight ends, in my opinion. So I, yeah. I think they can do that. Um, from the from the Jaguars' perspective, long-term, so to win the you know AFC South right now, they're at minus 150, and the Jaguars are plus 125. So it's very close, and you know the Jaguars control their own destiny because they, you know, are, are going to get to play the, the Titans week 18. You know, I think from, you know, kind of like the, whoever wins this division will get the four seed in, in the AFC. And, you know, I, I think right now it's, it's pretty clear that the, the Jaguars would be the scarier team if mm-hmm. you're the loser of the AFC North, whether it's the Bengals or the Ravens to play in that first round. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, easily. I mean, you take you don't want to face the better quarterback on the road ever. And that's what the Jaguars have. And and just in general, the Jaguars have been playing better like since week nine. Trevor Lawrence, highest graded quarterback by PFF, ranks pretty highly in EPA. But again, it is the Jaguars controlling their own destiny. Right now, they're not even favored, like they're barely favored against the Jets starting Zach Wilson on the road. So I mean, I, I really hope that we get to see Trevor Lawrence in the playoffs. It's it's kind of similar. <clears throat> No, it, it's actually very similar to the scenario last year where it's Chargers versus Raiders to get into the playoffs. Trevor Lawrence is 0.8 Herberts and Tannehill is like 1.2 Kirks and Derek Carr is like 1.1 Kirks. So it's like a very similar, like, do you want to see a Herbert or do you want to see a, a Kirk heading into the playoffs? Um, but yeah, like long term, I, I do think I, I do hope the Jags win the division. But again, they have to win out. A lot of things have to go their way. But I definitely, I definitely think it's possible given the way that Trevor Lawrence is playing right now. Um, but you know, obviously, I do have concerns about their defense. They were getting shredded through the air, except for the pick six. Like I talked about, how Dak averaging a zero point four EPA per play or EPA per dropback, um, despite Ceedee Lamb really being the only reliable receiver, they still couldn't stop him. Um, which I think again, they don't have the top end guy to kind of like shut down wide receiver ones. Darius Williams is fine. But he, again, he was best suited in L.A. as a cornerback, too. Right. So um, mm-hmm. in terms of the long term outlook for them, again, like most teams or like most teams with good quarterbacks and bad defenses, it's, it's as far as T-Law takes them, because this jet, this Jaguars defense isn't probably going to get like the necessary stops. It's going to come down to, you know, how well Trevor Lawrence plays and, um, you know, how many points he can put on the board every single week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I, I agree with that. And yeah, we can. Yeah, that was that was really good talking about all of those games. We can quickly touch on Bengals box before we go into our next segment. Um, you know, it, it, you know, you pointed this out uh, when we were talking yesterday, but it, it truly was, you know, kind of like a, a black and white, like tail of two halves, like just kind of like back and forth here where, um, you know, it was like split, like right down the middle from first half to second half. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Bucks looked awesome in the first half carlton davis was playing the game of his life against jamar <laughs> chase they're not allowing him to get any reception uh, you know bucks were up 17-0 at one point because they tipped a pass off burrow they got an interception burrow was you know um you know rarely inaccurate on on a lot of his passes and then the entire second half was just the bucks shooting themselves in the foot over and over and over you know you have two fumbles uh on handoffs that you know ended up being charted to being tom brady's fault you would 
you know, two Tom Brady interceptions. You had a fake punt that was a miscommunication. And, you know, there were there ended up being 47 straight plays that occurred in Buccaneers territory because of all the turnovers and things that were giving the Bengals the bar continuously. You know, it took until, uh, you know, fourth quarter for the Bucks to finally move the ball out of their territory onto the other side of the field. And by that time, the Bengals were up double digits. So, you know, I think, you know, like, again, like the Bengals defense played really well in this game. But, like, I, I do think that, you know, as well as Barrow has played this year, this was one of those games where it was the entire supporting cast helping him on his off day instead of, you know, kind of like the other way around where sometimes he would help out, you know, the, the rest of the team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Oh, you know, watching that game, it, it did feel like Burrow kind of struggled a little bit. He made some, um, he, he wasn't as accurate. Guys weren't really getting open for him. So he couldn't, you know, again, he just doesn't possess the arm strength to kind of fit those tight window throws sometimes. The the throw to Jamar Chase, I think um, that he, I don't know, if, was it this week? I think it was this week where he kind of fit the ball in between two corner or two defenders was great. Um, but yeah, I think, Every quarterback's gonna have his off day. I I've given my flowers to Burrow. I think he's been great this season. Um, you know the Bucks do possess some type of a tough matchup for him with Carlton Davis having his best game against um, Jamar Chase and that them having like a solid pass rush to kind of like disrupt Burrow early on in the game. Um, that that one sack he took, I mean, like I don't even know what that like. How do how do you even describe that sack he took? Like what has to be going through your mind to run back thirty mm-hmm. yards and take that sack? Yeah, it was it was kind of old Burrow uh, where he you know was trying to be way too aggressive. He he's really lowered his sack rate a lot this year, which has been the most impressive thing about mm-hmm. his play and why I've had to eat crow on that take because I thought he wouldn't be able to lower his sack rate. Um, you know, more like a Russell Wilson uh, type situation where he's not able to to do that and like that kind of hurts his you know long term outlook. But that was a you know really bad play that he ended up you know, again, getting, getting bailed out on, which, which was, you know, really good for, for them to kind of sustain that drive and, and take over that game. And yeah, you know, again, like with kind of like what the Bengals did on defense in this game, completely shutting down the Bucks in the second half, granted, they got a lot of turnover luck. Like I, I prefer hiring offensive minds over defensive minds, you know, for head coaching. Um, But like Lou Anarumo really needs to get Lux this offseason. You know, yeah. he, he should be at the top of almost every team's, you know, that need a head coach uh, vacancy, you know, kind of list because his second half adjustments, you know, and what he's able to do in the second half, you know, having the, the, a top five defense, you know, in, in the second half this season, um, you know, not allowing many points at all to be scored has been super impressive. And, you know, I don't know if he's like a big rah-rah guy, but I think, you know, getting that defensive mastermind in there could really yeah. help, you know, a team with a head coaching vacancy right now. Yeah. And in terms of like the long-term outlook, like this was something that I talked about on the forecast when I, when I really liked Bengals minus three and a half, and I'm still continuing to ask this question every single week in terms of the long-term outlook for the bucks. I know they're the team. No one wants to play in the NFC at home, like on the road because of Tom Brady, but what are the bucks good at? Like, what is their strength of their team? right now it's yeah it's, it's tough to say you know i still think that their secondary can play at a high level but they're not consistent enough and you 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 point out that the bucks coaching staff hasn't done a good job this year in a lot of areas and i think that could stem all the way up to the coaching bruce arians it's clear now helped you know with a lot of areas from a culture perspective team building perspective and play level perspective and like that just hasn't been there with this bucks coaching staff this year and that's why you have this meltdown 
in the second half of this game where you're completely dominating the first half and you end up losing by double digits. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I do think their secondary when they get Jamel Dean back with Carlson Davis, Antoine Winfield, like that is a pretty good secondary. But I like they can't run the ball. I don't think they lean into Brady's strengths as a play action passer enough. Mm-hmm. They still love to run these halfback dives for no gain and putting Brady in, in bad situations, but and no Tristan Wirfs obviously kills kind of like their deeper developing plays. And Brady, again, with his low time to throw this year, he's not he doesn't want to get hit. So he's not going to like let those deeper developing plays happen if guys aren't getting open. So a lot of questions about the Bucs going into the postseason if they even make it. Panthers had a chance, but they couldn't beat Kenny Pickett at home. So maybe <laughs> they don't deserve to to make the playoffs. Yeah, yeah. Bucks still, you know, are, are minus 360, you know, betting implied uh, 78%. Uh, to to make to win their division and host a home playoff game and you know I I get why whoever gets that five seed most likely the Cowboys you know might be scared of playing playoff Tom Brady but this feels a lot like the 2019 uh, New England Patriots season for Brady where he's just mm-hmm. not able to get much going on offense because of how bad the offensive line is playing and you know kind of like the supporting cast and like it might be similar to 2019 uh, Patriots Titans game except with you know Cowboys and uh bucks here yeah. you know in in that 5-4 game looking ahead but that yeah that that was all of our game wrap ups we can now you know transition into our who is him awards and our letdowns of the week you are not him you are not him a bitch i'm him quick play trying to ride with a boss with bitch get in stay on the road like the michelin man put an m on your head like a michigan fan all right so we are going to do our who is him awards of the week first uh, you know, three players, coaches from the past weekend that we thought really excelled and deserve a shout out. Arjun, you want to kick us off? Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to start with Kayvon Thibodeau, who I thought had a tremendous game. Um, so he only forced two pressures, but he got a, a pass rush grade of 88, a strip sack inside, you know, inside his own 10 or in, inside the Redskins 10 or Commanders 10 that resulted in a touchdown. I mean, he had a tremendous game uh, pass rushing, and he also had five run stops. Like, he was dominant in the run game, and he kind of just showed the elite upside that everyone was talking about heading into the draft. And I'm sure we'll have conversations about whether, you know, he should have been the number one pick or he was the best edge. I know everyone on film Twitter is always, like, just, you know, just saying, like, oh, yeah, he was always edge one. Like, you know, they kind of knew ahead of time. But uh, I thought he had a pretty dominant game in this game, and it was uh, it was really refreshing to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... Yeah, I, I thought Thibodeau was amazing in this game as well. And I saw a cool video breaking down that he gave a hand signal to Elise Ojolare, um, you know, mm-hmm. on the other side yeah. as the other edge, where he was kind of saying like, oh, I'm, I'm going to, you know, go around uh, deep here. So can you contain the edge to make sure Heineke doesn't step up in the pocket to kind of force that strip sack, which I think is really yeah. cool communication on their part. And, you know, considering that he wasn't able to like do a lot of training camp because of his injury, I'm glad to see that it's it's working out for him now. Uh, I'm I'm gonna go with Tyler Algier, Algier uh, Falcons running back. Um, you know, under the radar game because Falcons lost this game and no one was watching Falcons Saints. But 17 rushes for 139 yards and a touchdown as the counting statistics. But then from a traditional metric standpoint, 15.1 total rush EPA was the most of any running back of of in a week this entire season. And 68 rushing yards over expected was the eighth best. Uh, rushing performance of the season so you know he jumps all the way up from you know being about an average running back the entire year yeah. to top 10 in in rushing yards over expected 
Um, and, you know, something that I thought was funny was, you know, that was more EPA and rushing yards over expected in one week than Brees Hall has had the entire season, you know, before his injury, um, you know, which, which kind of says like, you can, you can find running backs day three, um, you know, even though Brees Hall is a great running back. Yeah. Algier is probably the best running back on the Falcons roster. I know people loved the idea of Cordell Patterson, um, but yeah, he's been, he's been tremendous. And it, it's interesting because Algier is one of those guys where he's playing at BYU behind a stacked offensive line, weak competition. And like, if you adjust for opponent and you run your draft models, like if he still shut up pretty highly, um, then like it was a great pick by the Falcons to kind of get him on day three, get him on a cheap deal. And, you know, he, he doesn't have a ton of volume this year because of Patterson, but um, if the Falcons are trying to win games, I definitely think he should be getting more touches. Um, I'm going to go with um, Trevor Lawrence, who we kind of already talked about a lot earlier, so I'm not going to talk about it too much. You know, again, without the turnovers, average 0.36 EPA per play versus a pretty solid Cowboys defense, even though they were missing a couple starters. And just some of the throws he was making were were really, really, um, really, really good. The one touchdown he had fitting in between two receivers, um, he had a, another touchdown rolling out. Like, I thought he had a tremendous game and was deserving of an award. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I, I really hope he does well Thursday night against the Jets um, so that like the, the rest of the country can kind of see how well he's been playing recently because it's been a lot of fun to watch. Uh, I, I, I need to give uh, him award to Brandon Staley. Um, not, you know, it, it, normally in the past, we would have given it to him for fourth down decisions, but we know that those aren't happening this year, but he still is a great defensive mind, you know, the same, you know, type of uh, defensive mind that he was when he rolled out the 2020 Rams defense, you know, the best defense of the past couple of years. And, you know, this was just two straight weeks of tremendous game planning without Derwin James, banged up defense in general, you know, holding the, the Titans to, you know, a, a low rate. And, you know, our friend Steven Ruiz pointed this out to us when we were messaging with him, you know, earlier this week was it was really cool, you know, how the Chargers lined up in a 3 4. Um, formation and then would rotate their linebackers down to create a 6-1 to stop the Titans heavy zone running game you know that's the same thing that Belichick did against the Rams in the 2018 Super Bowl you know the famous game plan to stop their zone run game and Staley was able to do that in this game without giving a tell that he was going to do that so that the uh, Titans couldn't call play action and you know know, if he can keep game planning like this you know, without like some of the talent that some of the other defenses have, I think the Chargers could actually make some noise, you know, end of the season into the playoffs. Yeah, it, it's pretty funny to me. Their defense has been better without Derwin James uh, the past two <laughs> weeks. And I think Staley's done a tremendous job, you know, like you just mentioned, kind of game planning against the Titans and Dolphins, kind of like taking it away their strengths and kind of exploiting their their weaknesses. Um, I'm going to finish off with A.J. Brown. Okay, I think we need to keep account of like how many awards like each player has gotten. Because I feel like AJ Brown, Justin Jefferson, Devontae Adams have all gotten at least like three or four awards. But when the Eagles needed a bucket, they went to AJ Brown. Nine catches, 181 yards. I need to look up the stats, but his him and Hertz's like go ball EPA or like you know whatever the yards per out run on those go balls, it must be very high because it seemed like every throw, every go ball that Hertz was making this game was being caught by AJ Brown. Um, six first downs caught, you know, two contested catches. I think he kind of just dominated whoever lined up against him and is, is going to be a crucial part of their um you know game plan in the playoffs if Hurts is able mm-hmm. to play. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I looked at that a couple of weeks ago for the go balls, but we should update that now. And it's been like uh nine receptions on 14 targets, um, for like an average of like 25 yards or something crazy like that on those, which is which has been super cool. Um, you know, if if Hertz, you know, is out. This week, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see how Minshew does with A.J. Brown and kind of how much he leans on him. That's something we can talk about on, on the Friday show. 
and you know my my last who was him award uh needs to go to michael parsons you know we talked about cowboys jags but didn't specifically touch on him 12 total pressures which was the most in the league last week 29 percent pressure rate you know i think he was playing a little injured these past couple of weeks but he really showed his impact uh, in this game you know forcing the the jaguars to have to speed up a lot of their plays in this game you know he's still the best defensive player in the league um you know in my opinion and can have a really big impact on this cowboys defense going forward and you know defense being a weak league system like there's still places to take advantage of the cowboys defense but sometimes mm-hmm. parsons just wrecks the game so much that he, he, you know you can't really do that and i think we could see a performance like that you know as we close out the season and get into the playoffs yeah yeah totally agree parsons is a is a beast and him and nick bosa for the depoy conversation is going to be very very heated by both fan bases um let's <laughs> move on to the letdowns um i'm gonna let you kick it off for this one yeah so you know we usually do, uh, you know, players and coaches from the past weekend who disappointed. But I do want to talk about the Buccaneers reporters, how they treated Giovanni Bernard, you know, <laughs> after, you know, his kind of his miscommunication on a punt, you know, surrounding him with, you know, as many reporters as they had, you know, felt a little out of touch. And, you know, saying that they he hasn't given them anything this year because he's been injured and like he hasn't talked to them, you know, felt like they weren't treating him, you know, well. And, you know, I thought, I ended up looking, you know, at the win probability uh, lost, you know, from each of the Bucks turnovers and, you know, the Tom Brady interceptions and fumbles were four of the top five and they were the top three most impactful plays for the Bucks, uh, you know, in that game against the Bengals and why they lost. And Giovanni Bernard's muff punt was the fourth, you know, biggest uh, reason why they lost from a win probability perspective. Yeah. So for the Bucks reporters to come after him specifically and treat him like they did, I thought was pretty disrespectful. And I hope that, you know, he gets an apology for that going forward yeah that was a that was a tough con- con- uh, confrontation to watch i think her name is like jenna lane who posted the video she was getting absolutely flamed in the comments by everyone and she was like even replying back it was it was pretty funny to kind of see that on uh on on sunday and kind of just con- continue to see that throughout the week um i'm gonna give mine to, to the ravens and brown special teams which I know the weather wasn't that great, but when Justin Tucker misses two field goals, I know one was blocked, but like when you go one for three in a game, like I think that's like so unprecedented. I I just like couldn't believe that Tucker missed that first field goal and then also got a second one blocked. And then Cade York missing a 38 yard field goal and a 46 yard field goal. Like they drafted him. Like the Browns are one of the sharpest teams in all of football drafting a kicker and it just hasn't worked out. York has missed many field goals this year to win the game, especially like again, he missed one to, against the Chargers. And the worst part about that was the the second field goal he missed. Deshaun Watson took a sack right before that. And the announcers were praising him that, oh, what a great sack that Deshaun took. Like he could have thrown it away, but you want to waste time. Like, no, like you don't want to like make a bad kicker have to take a tougher field goal, which inevitably missed. I thought that was just hilarious. And, uh, you know, both mm-hmm. special teams I thought were pretty awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it, it was, it kind of made that kind of a forgettable game, uh, you know, just because of everything that happened on Saturday in between uh, or that game in between, you know, two like great games uh, was weird. But I, I, that was my main takeaway from, uh, you know, Browns Ravens as well was while wow, like the, the special teams was really poor in that game. And, and kind of going forward but yeah that's that's all we have for for this episode again really appreciate everyone who came to the the twitter spaces on friday that we did we you know we were very lucky to get twitter spaces back five minutes before <laughs> you know we wanted to record um so you know thank you to whoever at twitter did that for us um and you know we had a lot of people come in and you know ask some really good questions and it was so much fun to talk ball 
with with everyone that that joins. So you know, we'll we'll definitely be doing something like that. Maybe you know, the last week of the the regular season or something as we get into the playoffs here. But that's all we had for this episode. Um, thanks again, you know, everyone who has listened and reviewed the podcast and, and given it a rating on Apple or Spotify. And you know, we we look forward to previewing some some really good games, uh, you know, on the, on the Friday show. So thanks again, everyone. Until next time, and take the point.